Well, I know it's going to be a good Sunday when a church member brings me a bottle of Lethal Dose 50 hot sauce from the Pepper Palace. So if I didn't know better, I would think, well, I know the sermon was boring last week, but what a hint. (laughs) So we'll just keep it right there. Oh, seriously, today we're going to be in the book of Exodus. So if you have a Bible, you can find the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. And you, I I would welcome you thinking, why would we be talking about Exodus? Uh, Why would we be talking about Exodus? Because it's thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years old. It's in the Old Testament. Um, It's about the nation of Israel and we're not them. You might be thinking, what? why would we do that? And I could say... Well, because of the history, and history is important, but not all of you like history. I could say because of the examples, but a lot of the examples are really bad. There's a lot of unfaithful examples in the book of Exodus, so we're not studying the book of Exodus because of the great examples that we want to follow, because there aren't so many great examples to follow, or I could say, well, we're going to be in the book of Exodus today because Israel is a holy nation. And wouldn't it be good if we were a holy nation? Well, I think it would be good if we're a holy nation. And yet, that's not why we're going to study Exodus, because actually Israel was designed to be a unique nation, not to be repeated ever again, because of what they represented and what they anticipated. So, strike one, strike two, strike three. Should we do Leviticus? (laughs) No, we're going to do Exodus today, because Exodus wonderfully, on purpose by God, foreshadows the ultimate exodus. And the book of Exodus, purposely by God, the history is there on purpose, it anticipates and foreshadows a greater Moses, a greater mediator who would perfectly, wonderfully lead his people into the ultimate promised land, the one the book of Revelation talks about, and that would be us, which leads to praise. The New Testament assumes we know a lot about the book of Exodus. So we want to know a lot about the book of Exodus so we can be better Christians even, and so that we can know that God was 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 setting a pattern in place, uh, a paradigm, if you will, so that we would say we need to be delivered too, just like the Israelites were delivered from oppression and slavery out of Egypt. We need to be delivered ultimately from our ultimate enemy, the Bible says, who is death, to be set free, to be set free by the perfect mediator. Moses, pretty good mediator, but still a sinner. We we need the ultimate mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate Moses, if you will, who will in fact lead us into the ultimate promised land. The Bible says the Jerusalem from above. And so I'm excited about the book of Exodus because I want to be a better Bible reader. I want to be a Christian who praises God for what he's done throughout history, even with these foreshadowings and these uh, paradigms. And so I hope it's infectious and you say, uh, I want to do that too. I want, I want to be a better Bible reader as a Christian. I want to be uh, praising God for what he's done throughout history so I can praise him for what he's doing in my life now. So that's what we're all about. That's why we're doing the book of Exodus. It's Exodus 24 today. And so if you can find Exodus 24, we'll do this chapter today. Isn't it weird how I said, I hope it's infectious and anymore. That's probably not a good image. Um, But you get the idea. We have to keep changing our vocabulary, right? To be politically correct or just 
more sane. Uh, I, I hope it's, what can I, what's, a, what's a synonym for infectious? I don't even know. <laughs> it's exciting to say, oh, God redeems. That's what Exodus, Exodus is about. God leads his people to the promised land. That, that's what Exodus is about. Well, guess what? We're looking for a greater promised land in the Lord Jesus. Okay, Exodus 24 it's going to be, uh, they're on, on, on Mount Sinai, um, ten, think ten Commandments, the giving of the law, the recounting of the giving of the law. It's rather remarkable. It's strategic. And we're going to learn about human nature. We're going to learn about the great need for something greater. How about verse 1? Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. And this is significant because of what we already learned back in chapter 19, because back in chapter 19, it says, you shall set limits for the people all around, so around Mount Sinai, giving of the Ten Commandments is the context, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. And so this is meant to be a unique thing. It's, it's holy, distinct, separate. And, and so when now Moses gets to come up and Aaron and his sons get to and the 70 elders get to, it's a big deal. It's, it's hands off limits. No, you can't come up here. But you know what? I am going to allow certain representatives to represent the people and I'm going to invite them to come up here. And so you might be saying, well, that seems kind of strict and that doesn't seem very nice and why wouldn't he let everybody come up there? Well, we're thinking about it the wrong way. Why would he let anybody have a unique, special worship kind of experience and get new revelation from God? And let's back up a little bit. If we remember that they're all sinners, that none of them are worthy to have a unique, special, extraordinary kind of worship experience from God, none of them are worthy. It actually is logical and makes sense given who God is and given who we are as a human race, given who they are as a people. It makes sense that they couldn't even come close. It makes sense that they couldn't even touch it. The right question is, how in the world could God allow any of them to come? Wow, he must be merciful. He must be gracious. He's accommodating this. There's something really special going on here. Also, just think in terms of, he's, he's, the, he's the great king. He, he's the great God, unlike the gods of the nations, unlike the gods of the Egyptians. Right? He, when they say, what's your name? We learned that in the book of Exodus. He, he answers and says, I am. Because it's typical for the gods to have names because they're associated with fire or water or warfare or agriculture. They, because they're all limited. I am is my name. I'm the self-existent God who's not like any of your other gods that you've come up with and named and designated. I'm the great king. I'm the self-existent one. I'm the eternal one. I'm the one who never has had a birthday or ever will have a birthday. Right? We learned it in the psalm today, in Psalm 102. And so for them to come into his presence, creator, creature, wow, special extraordinary, unique. And we understand this. 
to a limited degree, if you're going to meet someone who's an important individual, royalty, prince, princess, king, queen, dare I say politician, (laughs) how have we made them special? Anyway, I digress. If you're going to go meet an important person, there's a certain protocol. Well, you're going to meet the most important person, if you will, not human being, but person that you would ever meet. We're going to send representatives and there's a certain protocol, a certain way to do this. This isn't odd. It's pretty normal that there would be these kinds of special things. We're talking about God, the great king, the one who's delivered them, who conquered all of their enemies in Egypt extraordinarily, not through some kind of divination or magic. He's not... A peer, he's not a pal, he's not a domesticated deity, he's not contrived, he's not to be judged, he's not to be dictated to, manipulated or bribed. He's the great I am who's to be obeyed and it only makes sense that he does this. So Moses comes, he, Moses is the covenant mediator. That's a mouthful, but it's actually important. Moses is the covenant mediator. We know mediator is the go-between person. So he's going to represent God to the people and he's going to represent the people to God mediator. He's the covenant mediator because a covenant is a formal agreement, a formal that brings about a formal relationship. And so Israel and God are in covenant together. Okay. Uh, Israel can't just do whatever they want to do. It's not a casual relationship. No, they're formally bound to God. He rescued them. He delivered them. And so uh, it's a special kind of relationship. And they're supposed to do certain things and not do other things. And there will be blessings or there will be cursings if it doesn't happen. So it's a covenantal kind of relationship. And this is all over the Old Testament. It's all over the New Testament, even when the word isn't used. It's covenantal. Uh, I attended a wedding reception yesterday. It was a private wedding. But if we would have gone to the wedding, I'm sure we would have uh, seen covenantal things. We're all familiar with weddings. We've been to enough weddings, all of us for the most part, to understand that there, there, there's formalities, right? There's vows exchanged. And if there's the breaking of the vows, there are consequences. There are witnesses because it's formal, right? Um, there's a wedding... License, a contract. We're going to see all that kind of stuff today with this covenant between Israel and God. And Moses is the covenant mediator. They're even going to have a meal. We still do that even today. We've been doing it for thousands of years. We're going to have a marriage ceremony with all exchanging gifts and all the formality. And we're going to swear certain things. It's all covenantal. And then oftentimes what happens, just like in the ancient world, you sit down and have a meal to settle the whole thing together and bring peace between the families. Some things don't change. We all understand this, even though a few minutes ago when I said he's the covenant mediator, you might have thought, what? Formal relationship, special relationship, and he's the go-between guy representative. That's Moses. Then Aaron is also there. He is going to represent the priesthood, even though it hasn't happened yet, it's going to happen. So Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, his sons, they're going to lead the future priesthood. Learn about that in Leviticus, if you will. And then the 70 ruling elders, they represent the people. Now let's keep going. Verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. 
or ordinances, some translations say. So it's going to include the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, in other words, the Ten Words. We learned about that in chapter 20. Ten Commandments, chapter 20 of Exodus. And then in 21, 22, and 23, you have the application. Here's what it's going to look like in your world, nation of Israel. So Moses, even though they've heard it, he, he, he tells it to them. He tells them the Ten Commandments. He tells them the application of the Ten Commandments. Uh, scholars and, and people who talk about this in a formal way say that he's ratifying the covenant. He's formalizing the covenant. He's making it official. How about verse 3? Let's keep going. And all the people, this is really important, get this. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. My question for you, is that the right response? Yeah, that's the right response. If the Lord Yahweh, the great God of the universe, who's unique and powerful and for you, if he says, here's what you're going to do in this covenantal relationship, what are you going to say? Well, the right response would be every last bit of it we'll do. We're totally in. Now, fascinatingly enough, in chapter 19, even before it was ratified, they said this. And you know what? I think they have good form. <laughs> before it's even stated, they're saying, we'll do this. 19.8, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. It's, it's, it's right to think about God and think whatever he says, it would be good for me, good for others, glorifying to him. It's just utterly rational and reasonable. So whatever you say, I'm in. You don't even have to finish the sentence. And I'm like, yep. So keep that in mind. We'll say more about this. We'll see more about this. But let's keep going for now. And Moses, this is verse 4. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. That would be customary to write down the details of the covenant, of the, of the contract, if you will, the formal agreement. You're going to write it all down so everybody can see. In our day, we would write it all down and, and the parties would sign, might need to be notarized, that kind of thing. It's, it's, it's that formal idea that we all understand. Then verse 4 goes on to say, please look there. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. The altar, we're going to see, you'll see the logic, the altar represents God. Okay, the altar represents God, so he builds an altar. Then let's keep going. And 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. So the 12 pillars represent whom? Well, it says the 12 tribes of Israel. The pillars represent the people. So altar represents God. Pillars represent the people. Okay, this is this ratification of this covenant. There's going to be a ceremony. It's important to see that. And it's pretty graphic. And I think interesting. I hope you do too. Verse 5 says, And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings. Leviticus 1 is going to tell us that's for guilt and sin. And sacrificed peace offerings to, of oxen to the Lord. Representing the fact that we, we, we're not in conflict with each other. We're at peace. As long as the covenant is kept, we're in a good relationship. Some of you like the, the technicality of things. If you don't, you can just take a quick super, take a quick nap or check your Twitter feed or whatever you need to do. Hope you weren't already doing that, but I get it. So in the ancient world, uh, this wouldn't have seemed odd. 
might seem odd to us. It wouldn't have seemed odd in the ancient world because we even have it in extra biblical literature, things like this happening. So you have in the ancient world a great king, and he would be called the suzerain. The great king is the suzerain king. You don't need to know that to get to heaven, thankfully. But I'm just giving you the, the, bi- the big history. The suzerain king, and then you would have a lesser king who's not as powerful, the vassal. Okay? And if the suzerain rescued a certain group of people, right? If he rescued them, protected them, provided for them when they were in need, there would be obligation and there would be covenanting. Okay, I'll protect you from enemies and invaders, but in response, you're going to be loyal to me. And if I ask you to do something, you're going to do it. There's obligation there. And so that's the idea, and it exists in the extra-biblical world. And so God is the great suzerain, and Israel would be the lesser vassals. And so it's not a pure relationship, but there is a covenantal binding between the two. They're joined together with obligations, blessings for devotion, consequences, bad consequences for violation. That's what's happening here. Okay, please come back from your Twitter feed. Okay, (laughs) if you were there. So with that in mind, this gets rather graphic and I think super interesting. Now picture this, verse 6. And Moses took half of the blood, no doubt that came from the sacrifices. He took half of the blood and put it in basins, bowls, and half of the blood, get this, he threw against the altar. So whether it's on a bush of hyssop or something like that, you dip it in there and he throws it against the altar. The altar represents God. So he throws the shed blood at the altar. What's that about? Seems weird to us in the 21st century. But guess what? Things we do in the 21st century would have seemed weird to these people too. But we can understand the shedding of blood. It's when you lose your life. It's the lifeblood, if you will. And no doubt, and we're going to keep reading, the, the big idea is, the big picture is, God had better keep his end of the bargain. And I know that's not very good language. God had better be a faithful covenant maker. And we know God can't die, but you get the idea. God should be judged with the most severe consequences if he's not a faithful suzerain king, providing, protecting, taking care of, fending off enemies, meeting needs. The blood makes it serious and sober. Do the right thing or else. Okay, there's there's that idea. Then it says in verse 7, then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. Remember, Moses is the mediator. He read it in the hearing of the people and they said, again, like in verse 3, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And grammar scholars tell us this is emphatic. This is most certainly, absolutely, positively, without exception. You can count on us. Without flinching, everything you say, God, we most certainly will do. How's that for trying to be emphatic? 
Hope I catched the Hebrew grammar. <laughs> Which is good. That would be right. That would be the right response. How about verse 8? And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. Same kind of thing. And said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And I say, what an image. What a graphic image. You keep your side of the covenant obligation you're swearing to today. And if you don't, it means your bloodshed. Cue the sober music. Cue the somber music. Because we know enough to know this is the time to go, uh uh-oh. Huh. So we have this ritual showing that this is a matter of life or death. You will be loyal as you have sworn to be loyal or else. And how do you show loyalty? By devotion to the words, what God has said. Again, odd in the 21st century, but wouldn't have been odd for them. It would have been understandable to them. And if you think about it, the consequence for breaking the obligation is not just bad credit. Uh, it's not just, you know, the repo man is going to come and take your car away because you didn't make the payments. It's blood. It's the most somber, serious kind of oath. On my life, I'll do the right thing. Next question for you. So, how do you think Israel does as far as their loyalty to Yahweh, the faithful, gracious, powerful, almighty, all-knowing God? It's not good. It's not good at all. If you would, find the book of Hebrews in chapter 3, and I'll give you a divinely inspired commentary on how Israel does. From God's perspective. I think Exodus 24 is one of those kind of, so for me, it's a, it's a strategic chapter because what we're seeing is strategic. They're not faithful. It's causing us to anticipate one who would be a faithful people or a faithful mediator on behalf of the people to bring them into the ultimate promised land? Okay, how about how about Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7? Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always, how about that? They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. They do not keep the covenant. They're not loyal. They're not faithful. That's not why, so it's why we're not studying Exodus to learn from all the great examples of all the Israelites. Next question then. So what must we learn when we step back and look at the bigger picture? 
What must we learn from Exodus 24 in light of the, the mega narrative, the, 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 the big storyline? We, we must learn, we must learn that there needs to be someone other than Israel who is faithful at keeping covenant, if you will, and being loyal and being a loyal servant and a loyal mediator and a loyal son so that he, let's be singular, he can lead his people because of his faithfulness into not the temporary promised land, but the ultimate promised land. That's what we have. We have to learn that from this. I love Exodus 24 because it helps me to go, oh, I got to step back and figure out the bigger picture here. And it actually is true. How, how, about, how about this? I love this. Listen to what Exodus 4.22 says. Don't lose, don't, don't, please don't check out. Exodus 4.22, it says, Israel is my firstborn son. I do this when I get excited. Man, I'm doing this all day long. Back in chapter 4, Israel the nation is called God's firstborn son. And today in the 21st century, talking to you as Christians by and large, you're like, they're not God's firstborn son. Because you're saying Jesus is God's firstborn son. And I'm pleading with you to remember Israel is God's firstborn son. Tested, tried, utterly failed But it's in anticipation. It's foreshadowing on purpose by the design of God to to pave the way for the ultimate firstborn son. Not the nation of Israel, but the Lord Jesus Christ who did everything right as the ultimate firstborn son. And then he represents his people and he, because of his obedience, leads his people into the promised land. Isn't Isn't it awesome? I mean, I mean, it is, it is absolutely mind blowing and it's, it's there. I'm not making it up. I'm not the first person to come up with this stuff, but, but I sure wish somebody would have told me this sooner. Maybe I wouldn't be so excited as a Christian. I'm like, wow, it's as if there'd been a plan all along. <laughs> wow. It's like Ephesians one is true. <laughs> That before the foundation of the world, before any of this stuff ever happened, it was meant to culminate in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it is. So, for effect and for emphasis, remember chapter 4, Israel is God's firstborn son. Not loyal, not faithful. But the Lord Jesus Christ, virgin conceived, born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth, did ministry in Galilee, was crucified outside the city gates in Jerusalem, uh, resurrected bodily, ascended into heaven, he's the ultimate priority firstborn son. I know so. Hebrews 1.6 says, the firstborn. Colossians 1.15, the firstborn. Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. My son I call out of Egypt. And you know what? How about this? The Lord Jesus Christ alone is the only one who can truly and completely and honestly be able to say, All this we will do. And that's a corporate we. We meaning myself and all of those I represent, my people. All this 
I will do, but you know what? I didn't come here for myself. He can say Exodus 24, truly and honestly and faithfully, all this we will do. It's so good. It's so grand. It's so glorious. This is why we as Christians have assurance. This is why we sleep well at night. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is the faithful, ultimate firstborn son. So good. So wonderful. Hebrews 10.7 says, quoting Jesus, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And he does. In Revelation 15, I know I'm all over the place, but uh, just ever so quickly. In Revelation 15, 3, the saints in heaven, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. I think that's strategic on, on purpose. Moses was a pretty good mediator for a fallen, sinful human being. But you know what? You've got to, you've got to put the two together and say, and the Lamb. Because there wouldn't have been singing any of the song of Moses if it hadn't already been built in and purposed that there would be the song of the Lamb who would be the ultimate mediator. So great. I need a breath. Maybe I need some hot sauce. I promise I didn't have any beforehand. But this is one of the, one of the most exciting things in, in, in my whole life. And it's so exciting to read the Bible this way. And you go, oh, wow. Exodus isn't such a bad book after all. Last week was hard, 21, 22, and 23. (laughs) This is a little easier to cover. Because you see puzzle pieces. Okay, let's keep going. We're going to transition now, a little bit different emphasis. Verse 9 says, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, so Aaron's two sons, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. Unique, special experience. They go up and they, they saw the God of Israel. And that's super impressive if you know your Bible very well at all, because God is a spirit. <laughs> and you can't see a spirit. John chapter 4, John chapter 4, verse 24. Oh, not only that, it's pretty impressive if they went up on the mountain and they saw God because 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16 says, no one has ever seen or can see. You're like, what? No one has ever seen God before or ever can see Him. That's 1 Timothy 6. That's in the New Testament. How in the world could they go up on the mountain and see God then? I don't think the Bible's contradictory. I know it's not. I know the Apostle Paul knew that what he said was not contradicting the Old Testament that he knew so well when he said what he said in 1 Timothy chapter 6. God is a spirit. God is invisible. But they saw a revelation of God. We, we, We end up having to come up with fancy designations. We say it's a theophany, right? Somehow God God gave them a unique vision. And we're going to see the unique uh, glory cloud vision representing God. The cloud isn't God. But there's a special, unique kind of experience so that they could know that the ever-present, all-powerful, invisible God is uniquely with them. So it's, it's special. 
It's unique. It's extraordinary. Colossians 1.15 also says the invisible God, by the way. Sometimes, like in Psalm 63, when people see the face of God, they don't actually see the face of God because God doesn't have a face. We're not talking about the incarnation. We're not talking about Jesus. When somebody sees God and they see the face of God, it's talking about that they're, they're experiencing the blessing of God. This unique, close relationship and, and blessing from God is what's meant using metaphor. They are enjoying His favor to know Him and to know Him uniquely and specially. So God makes himself uniquely known, manifested, showing his greatness, giving his blessing. Then verse 9 goes on to say, there was under his feet. Does God have feet? No, he doesn't have feet. But he's, he's capturing the idea. Under, under this thing, under, under God's feet, using metaphor, God is a spirit. There was under his feet, as it were, see, he, he, he even... He understands as it were, right? We're not strictly speaking, but we're going to describe the indescribable as it were a pavement of sapphire stone. So precious gemstone, glorious gemstone. The vision was like that. He's not saying there was actual pavement or sapphire, I don't think, but it's like that. That's something special that we can't explain, but we can liken it to something we have seen before. Like the very heaven for clearness. It's like looking up into the sky with, with no city lights. Read ancient Israel. <laughs> and it's grand and it's glorious and it's bright and it's overwhelming. And it might even take your breath away. What, what we saw, this vision of God that we saw was like that, as it were. Like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. Some of your translations say against because that's the idea. We saw this great, amazing, unique vision of God, and he didn't hurt us. He didn't lay hands on us, and not in the charismatic way. (laughs) As in, he wasn't against us. And then it says, how about this? Even with more emphasis, they beheld in a unique prophetic-like vision. Think Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Which would be normal when it comes to ratifying a covenant. We're going to sit down and have a meal because we're at peace with one another. We're not at war. We're not in conflict. We're in a good relationship. Okay, there it is. Ancient custom. How about verse 12? The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there. So come up even higher, Moses. They're not all coming with you, but now you come to the next level, if you will, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. Later in Exodus 34, verse 28, uh, they're described as the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. In chapter 31, verse 18, written with the finger of God, it says. Tablets. Scholars like Meredith Klein and and Curd and others would say, tablets, I, I wouldn't die for this. This doesn't have to be a church split issue or anything like that. Tablets, because there were duplicates, not because you have 
five commandments on one tablet and five commandments on another, but you have duplicates because that's how it was in the ancient world. So that kind of messes up some of the things we see when, on images. I wouldn't die for it, but kind of interesting, I think. Then it says, verse 13, So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God, so Mount Sinai, as we will see. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. So this is going to be a while. Then verse 15, Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. This is the, the glory cloud, the divine presence symbolized. They're dwelling with God. This unique cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. So notice, dwelling on Mount Zion is the glory of the Lord. And it's with the people. Which is a huge theme in the Bible. God dwelling with his people. Here it's happening with Moses, but guess what? Unique dwelling is going to happen with the tabernacle, which is going to come later in our study. And then unique dwelling with the people, God uniquely dwelling with his people, this unique glory cloud kind of experience, not only with Moses, then it's going to be tabernacle, then it's going to be where? It's going to be temple. And then ultimately, it finds its realization in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we read the book of Revelation, we read these words. Chapter 21, verse 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is the, this is the microcosm preview in anticipation of the coming day when God will ultimately and forever, because of the accomplishment of the ultimate mediator, dwell with his people, specially, extraordinarily, permanently. This is foretaste. This is foreshadowing. We're waiting for the ultimate exodus. We're waiting for that time to come with an ultimate mediator. And this is giving us just little tastes and and previews. Verse 17 says, Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain. In the sight of the people of Israel, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Please listen to this from Deuteronomy. The Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet, this is Moses speaking, like me, from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. And the idea is, really listen, ultimately listen, that's Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, Moses said, In other words, my paraphrase, there's a greater Moses coming. There's a greater mediator coming. He's like me. He's not me. But you need to make sure you listen to him. Why? Well, Moses is a mediator, but he's not a perfect mediator. Perfect mediators live forever. Read the book of Hebrews. Moses is going to die. 
And Moses is going to die because he's a sinner. So he's like me because he's a mediator. Uh, He's like me because he's tested. And Moses had been tested. But if we learn everything we can learn about Moses, Moses wasn't perfect. But he's like me because he's a mediator, because he's tested. He's like me because he's law-giving. True. But he's also distinct. How about this? He's like me, but better because he's the mediator who 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, is the God-man. And 1 Timothy 2, 5 says he's the only mediator. And Paul wasn't born yesterday. He knows there have been many mediators. But he says he's the only mediator because he's the only ultimate mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's the one we've been waiting for, that, that, that Moses foreshadows, that anticipates. So he's distinct because he's the God-man mediator. He's also similar but distinct because he's tested and yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15, in every respect, he's been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's Jesus, the better Moses. Not only that, one more, and then we'll wrap it up. Jesus is also law-giving. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard it said? And then in Moses-like fashion, he says, but I say to you. That's Moses kind of talk. That's law-giving kind of talk. But not only does he give law, like Moses gave law, chapter 5 of Matthew, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but what? I came to fulfill the law. Moses didn't do that. Moses couldn't do that. It had to be somebody, Deuteronomy 18, who's like me. Right? As the saying goes, the same except different. (laughs) Yeah, he's like Moses, but he's better because he will keep the law and fulfill the law. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. I would encourage each of you, all of you, to look for a better promised land. I love trips to Israel and to go to the Middle East and eat shawarma and falafel. Awesome history. Great. I love it. Can't wait to go again. But I'm not looking forward to that as much as I'm looking forward to the Jerusalem, according to the book of Revelation, that comes from above. The ultimate promised land. And you know the way to get into the ultimate promised land? It's not by saying, we will do it. Don't do that. It's only by looking to the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the only one who could have ever actually, truthfully, successfully said, we will do it. I will do it, and I'll do it on, my, on behalf of my people. So good. This is why we say the gospel is good news. It's good news that eternal life is free to you who trust in Christ because he did all of the work through his perfect life of obedience, through his perfect death on the cross, making atonement for all of our disobedience, through his resurrection, promised to give resurrected life to everyone who ever trusts in him, though you die, through his ascension as our great high priest. It's good news. 
It's great news. Trust in Christ. If you're not a Christian, and if you are a Christian, trust in Christ. (laughs) Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the glorious grace of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to want to obey, not to gain the new Jerusalem, but because we already are citizens because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may that motivate us. May it cause us to want to do what's right. May it also cause us to be people who are filled with gratitude that want to tell other people about how great it is to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Encourage us, sustain us, build us up and keep us. Help us to remember that it is the one who is called the righteous in First John chapter 2, verse 1, who is none other than Jesus, our substitute. In his name we pray, amen.